Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. All right. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good. Hey, at this time, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss all of our three to five and six and seven-year-olds. If you are a parent of that age group... um, and you haven't checked your emails, haven't seen an email from Jordan, uh, I want to do make this announcement. We are planning to have a special song December 18th uh, that the kids will be singing. Um, and so practice will be going on during the Little District time today until December 18th when they'll be singing. Uh, so if you haven't seen that email, um, I'll make sure Jordan resends it this week. Uh, but just be on the lookout for that. It'll be a special time for the kids to just be able to sing a song and lead us in worship. And so they're going to be practicing that today um, in the next coming weeks. If you are not here during that practice, the email does have a YouTube link that will take you to the song. Um, and that'll help you be able to teach the kid, uh, kid or kids, the song that they will be singing. Okay, so that is my announcement for that. December 18th. Um, so if you are in town... Come join us as the children lead us in worship. It'll be great. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh. I am one of the lead pastors here at the district church. Um, It's been a while before or since I've been able to get up here and preach. Um, And so it is always a joy and honor to be able to open up God's word with you all. Um, So I'm excited to walk through uh, this next passage in our series, The Gospel According to Luke. So as you're turning to this chapter... I want us to remember what Jesus said in Matthew, or Matthew, Luke chapter 5, verses 37 through 39, when he was speaking to the Pharisees about new wineskins. And he says this, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one after drinking the old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. What he's referring to here as he's talking to the Pharisees is this new covenant that is to come through his life, death, and resurrection. And what he's saying to the Pharisees is that you can't take your old way of living in Judaism and attach it to Christianity and expect it to go well for you. You can't look at the old covenant and say, this was our way of salvation. Because Paul reminds us in Romans 3.20 when he says the law only revealed sin. So what Jesus is saying here is that this new covenant is the way in which salvation comes and the way in which we are to live. And so what we see in chapter 6 is a, uh, really a playing out of or the example of how this new covenant will flesh itself out. And Luke does this in three ways. We saw this last week when he talked about a new way of viewing Sabbath, that Jesus ultimately says, I am the rest that you are looking for, that Sabbath points to. This week, we'll be looking at the 12 disciples being called. Now, when you think about 12 and 12 men being called, you should hopefully think about your Old Testament and think that, oh, this is the same parallel of the 12 tribes of Israel, because it is. If you know your Old Testament well enough, you're going to see these parallels happen. And so what we'll see in the next coming weeks as well, uh, when Jesus gets up and does his Sermon on the Mount, it's in the same parallel order in which Moses has given the Ten Commandments for Israel to obey and to live. And so what we see is this new way of living that Jesus gives through the Sermon on the Mount, the way that kingdom, citizens of the kingdom are supposed to live. And so here's this parallel, right, that Moses gives the law 
The law points to the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a reminder for people to rest because they have been brought out of slavery. And then the 12 tribes of Israel are called, much like Jesus calling the disciples. And then the law itself is given. And Jesus gives us the Sermon on the Mount in a way in which we are to live. And so it's a very, very interesting pattern of what Jesus is showing us as he parallels Israel. Because what he is doing here in this passage is saying, ultimately, I fulfilled the law and the prophets. We aren't, we aren't to, to push aside or say that the Old Testament and the Old Covenant is now no longer needed. Because Jesus does say in the Sermon of the Mount, I have come to fulfill the law and prophets. And he also says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So it is important for us to continue to understand and know our Old Testament. But what he's saying in the new covenant that has come in his life, death, and resurrection, it is no longer Israel that is the people of God. It is the church built on the foundation, as Ephesians 2 would say, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets as Jesus as its chief cornerstone. So this is what he's telling us in chapter 6, is this new way of living, this new covenant that we are supposed to live under as the people of God, the church. And so what I want us to really ponder and think on this morning uh, is this main point, and then we're going to jump into the passage of Jesus calling his 12 disciples. My main point this morning, and, and it came from Alistair Begg as I was studying, I wanted to expound upon this statement that he made. He says, in Christ, we aren't who we used to be, and because of him, we are not who we will become. So in Christ, we aren't who we used to be, and because of him, we are not who we will become. So let's pray, and we'll jump into this passage here. Lord, you are good. You are so good to us through your grace and mercy of your son, Jesus Christ. And as we'll see in your word this morning, through the life of Jesus, as well as these 12 men that you call to be your disciples, that you don't just call us based on our own merit, on our own strength, on our own ability to obey, but you call us on the strength of your grace. And you call us to come and follow you. And you give us a promise that you are going to make us into the image of Christ. As your word says, he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Lord, we know that this good work is you making us into the image of your son. Lord, I am so thankful to stand here this morning to proclaim your word and to say and believe that we are not who we once were. I am not who I once was, but by your grace, I am also not who I will become. And may you give us hope and joy and compel us from this truth to pursue your mission of making disciples that love you more and love others well. Forgive us where we fall short. Help us to be reminded through your word and through your people that you are our greatest joy. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It is for your glory and our joy that we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Christ, we aren't who we used to be, and because of him, we are not who we will become. I hope you understand that statement this morning. That we are not, because of grace, who we once were. But right now, because of grace, we are not who we will become. This should bring us hope as we hear this truth. That God has called us his own. 
that he has changed our status from sinners to saints, from enemy to child, from life to death. But he isn't leaving us where we are. Isn't that beautiful? That he doesn't just save us, call us his own, and then he leaves us to ourselves? But he's transforming us in every area and aspect of our lives to look more like Christ. And I, can ho- I hope that you see that from this text this morning as Jesus prays for the men he would choose to send out to turn the world upside down. So let's take a look at verse 12. It says this. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. So what we see here early on in this passage is that Jesus secludes himself to pray for what is about to happen. And we know what it's about to happen is that Jesus is going to call his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles, to go and preach and proclaim the mission of God. And this morning, it would be easy for me to stand up here and say, if Jesus prayed before a big decision in his life, shouldn't we be doing the same? It, yeah, it's a good question to ask. But how many of us have become better prayers because of guilt? How many of you can stand here and say, Man, I was guilted one time, and I just became a better person of prayer. How many of us want to pray better? I know I do. I want to become a better prayer warrior. So here's what I want to say this morning to not guilt us into this reality, that yes, Jesus does give us the example of prayer. I want, to, I want you to see that Jesus shows us that prayer is, the essential, is essential to our lives and our life's decisions. You see, much like going to the gym, and whether you run, do CrossFit like me and the Hunters and the Vossers, yes, we are better than everyone because we do CrossFit. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm obligated to tell you that because I do CrossFit. Anyways, so whether you run, swim, go to CrossFit, work out in the gym, you understand that if you stop for a period of time, you begin to get worse. If we neglect the health of our bodies, whether it is even walking or doing low, what's the word? Yeah, whatever, you guys know what I'm saying. If you're, if you're doing something even genuinely strenuous on your life, you are going to get more healthy. But if you neglect it, it will affect you. It affects your heart. It affects your minds. It affects your life. It affects your emotions. It affects all of who you are. And in the same way, if you neglect prayer, it will have a negative impact on your life. And Jesus shows us that it is essential that we be a people of prayer. Now, you may be thinking, well, Jesus was God, so of course he's going to be good at prayer, right? But what I hope that you've seen the last couple of chapters as we've walked through the book of Luke is that Jesus prays out of his full humanity. It isn't just that Jesus was fully God, that he prayed and was able to enter into communion with God the Father, but it was because he was fully man that he needed to rely on the Father in order for his life to go well and to give us the example of what perfect obedience looks like. So in Christ, we do have an example of someone who shows us how to pray. 
but in Christ. And this is where I hope that you find hope and joy, even at times where you run into a season of prayerlessness. We have the one who is perfect and obedient that has been imputed to us that gives us the desire to pray. It's Jesus' perfect life that helps us pray. But it's also Jesus' perfect life that fulfills the righteousness when we don't pray, when we have the sin of prayerlessness. God still can look at us because we are sons and daughters of God and be delighted in us, but also point us to his word and encourage us that we need to be a people of prayer. And what Jesus shows us in his life of prayer is that he knows it's essential and that in prayer he is dependent on God. And this is what prayer does for us, right? Jesus shows us this. Prayer shows that we depend on God. It's a demonstration of our dependence on God the Father. Yet how often are we living lives by our own strength because we are not practicing this dependence on Him? How often are we forfeiting and trying to live this life as if we are God instead of depending on Him in prayer? One of my favorite hymns, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, All Our Sins and Griefs to Bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. So I don't want you to be discouraged this morning. I'm not trying to guilt you into being a better prayer. I'm trying to invite you into something that we have the privilege to do. We have the privilege to commune with the God of the universe, the King, the Lord, with unhindered access. To even understand that we have unhindered access, we have to look back at the Old Testament and see the way in which Israel was able to commune with God was through a priest. And there was a veil, and they, they could only go at certain times. And so when Jesus went to the cross and he died and that veil was torn, it signifies now we have unhindered access to God the Father. And guys, he delights in hearing and answering our prayers. So let's remember that in Christ we are not who we once were. And this includes our desire to pray. And right now we are not who he is making us to be. And that includes, because of our union with Christ, that we can be people of prayer. And that when we fail his righteousness, because it's imputed to us, we can have assurance that God still delights in us and invites us into prayer. But let's keep going because this sermon could just go straight into just a sermon. I don't want it to do that. (laughs) So Jesus takes the entire night to pray to then call his disciples. So let's take a look at who these disciples are. Now I'm going to walk through them probably name by name. Some of them have more information than others. Um, So please don't be frustrated as I stop and go, stop and go. 
But starting in verse 13, And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, the first one being Simon, who he named Peter. So we see that Jesus had a large group of disciples. Now, this is, a, a, to me, a wild event, right? Because in Scripture, we find that he potentially could have 70 to 100 disciples following him at this time, maybe even more. And so you think about Jesus steps up, and there's a crowd in front of him, and he starts calling 12 out. He says, Simon, who I'll call Peter. What's interesting about Peter is that in every list of the apostles, whenever they're named, whether it be in Matthew or Mark, in Luke, in the book of Acts, Peter is first. Now, it's not because that we understand that he will eventually be the first bishop in Rome or the first pope, but we see in the Gospels that it is more based on his position of leadership within the apostles. We see that as the Gospels move on and into the book of Acts, Peter becomes the spokesperson for the church. But what's interesting is Peter is also known as we walk through the Gospels. We see that Peter is very careless. Peter is careless with his words, careless with his actions. I mean, one minute he is claiming that Jesus Christ is Lord, and the very next verse, Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan, because Peter is trying to stop him from going to the cross. What accommodation. Jesus is like, thank you for saying this. And then he's like, please get behind me, Satan. How might Peter feel in that? We find Peter at Jesus' trial before the cross rejecting Jesus three times because he had a fear of man. But if you ever want to have hope in a disciple or in the fact that God uses fallible and sometimes unreliable people, man, you should look at Peter's life. If you ever think about how can God use me because of this sin in my life or because I can't seem to get this right, look at Peter and how Jesus constantly calls him, constantly pursues him. And even in Galatians, we find in the New Testament, Peter had to, Peter had to have his sin called out. So he still didn't get it, but he was in progress. Because Peter was not who he once was. And he wasn't in Christ who he would become until glory. Yet after the death and resurrection of Christ, we do see that Peter was indeed the rock of the early church. And God used him in a mighty way. We look at Andrew, Peter's brother. Ironically, we find in the Gospels, in the order of who Jesus called, Andrew was actually the first disciple to be called by Jesus, not Peter. But other than that, we don't really know much about him. Other than that, church history would tell us that he was martyred for his faith, and he did so dying on a cross shaped like an X. And yet, during his life, and up until Jesus' ministry, and Jesus' calling, we find that he, like Peter, was a fisherman. That was his day job. We find two other fishermen, James and John, brothers like Peter and Andrew. Now, Peter, James, and John, if you're familiar with the New Testament, understand that they were considered the inner three of Jesus' twelve. But James and John were known as the sons of thunder because they were ready to turn the world upside down for Jesus' earthly ministry. 
There's one part in the Gospels where James and John are ready to destroy a city because they said something bad about Jesus or because they weren't claiming to be Jesus' disciples. And Jesus is like, chill out, y'all. We, we don't need to be destroying anyone. James and John also have the great story of their mother coming to Jesus and asking, can my son sit at your right hand and left hand? Imagine that. Jesus is like, these are grown men. Why, why are you asking this question? But James and John... Sons of thunder. James was the first apostle to be martyred while John, being persecuted, was not killed. But he was exiled because people were superstitious back then and thought, if we can't kill him, we've got to get as far away as possible. So they exiled him to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. Now this is the same John who is also the author of of the gospel according to John, as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We see Philip. We don't, know, we don't have much on Philip, but there are two examples of the gospel that stand out. The first we see in the gospel of John where Philip told Nathanael that we have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That was the first time that we've seen Philip. But the next a couple of chapters later in John 6, we see Philip being the one to question whether or not the loaves and the fish can feed the 5,000. And so because of that, we see maybe an attitude of doubt or struggle of whether or not Jesus could actually do what he said he was going to do. We find Bartholomew that is mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, but is not in the Gospel of John. So most believe that this is actually Nathanael who Philip brought to meet Jesus. The Gospels don't tell us much about Nathanael, but Jesus' description of his character is profound. Matthew, the next person we have on the list, we have already met in Luke chapter 5, is a tax collector. But if you're unfamiliar with tax collectors during that time, he worked for the Roman government. He collected taxes against his own people to help the government that was oppressing the Jews. And oftentimes they were very shady and took more than they needed to. You have Thomas the doubter. We all should be familiar with him. He is the one who asks to see after Jesus resurrected the holes in his hands and the side where the sword went in to his body. We have James the son of Alphaeus. Or James the Lesser, as to not be confused with James the Son of Thunder. He's also known as James the Lesser because apparently he was shorter than everyone else. I don't know why this was a description that they use in the scriptures, but apparently they wanted to just be very articulate. Because of his stature, he's known as James the Smaller. So if you picture, if Dwayne's in this group, this is going to be him. (laughs) Sorry. I'm not really sorry. The next disciple that we find is Simon the Zealot. If you're familiar again with your New Testament, zealots were insurrectionists. They were passionately committed to overthrowing the Roman government and driving the Romans out from the land. They were even called ancient terrorists because they were trying to destroy the government. Then you have Judas, the son of James, or as Matthew would call him, Thaddeus. If you understand when these books were written, Luke would have been written before Matthew and most likely he would want to change his name after the events of Judas Iscariot. 
I wouldn't want Judas as my name after that. And you guys probably wouldn't either. So he changed his name to Thaddeus, and that's what we see in the gospel. But that's all we see of him. And then finally, we see Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray Jesus, the treasurer of the group. And what I want us to remember when it comes to Judas Iscariot is two things. Jesus called him. Jesus prayed for him. And he must have been, because he must have been someone of noble character within the disciples already. Yet at some point, greed did grip his heart. Yet in the gospel story, we have to understand, and we, we even see this play itself out, the sovereignty of God in sending Jesus to the cross and the responsibility of humans and the decisions that they make. Because in the gospel, Jesus, even though he called him, Judas was a part of Jesus' ultimate mission on earth to die on the cross. And so Judas's betrayal is still a part of what God had foreordained before the foundation of the earth. And as R.C. Sproul puts it, what Judas meant for evil, God used for good. And so these are the men that Jesus prayed for. These are the men that Jesus called. These are the men that Jesus taught and sent out after three years, minus one. And he did this not based on anything that they had accomplished, not based on any physical attributes of appearance or human merit, but he did this by his grace. I want you to see that these men, I, I, I brought up their occupations that I knew of because I wanted to show you that there are fishermen, uneducated men, tax collectors, zealots. Those two shouldn't even be in the same group together. But these were not all stars of the Jewish faith. Yes, we come into the New Testament where Paul is the, the Pharisee of the Pharisee, the Sadducee of Sadducee, but the, the men that Jesus chose to start his mission with, they had no power. They had no claim to changing the world. They were just lowly, humble men that Jesus called average this is not the group the world today would choose to start anything, right? If you're starting a small business, are you going to get a guy who's hot-headed who keeps failing you? If you're starting a business, are you going to get some guys that just constantly doubt you and your leadership? What about a guy who constantly wants to tax everyone? Or what about a guy who just wants to destroy the tax collector and everything else? This is not who the world would choose to start any type of movement, let alone something that would turn the world upside down. In fact, this is what Paul would say about us to remember our calling in 1 Corinthians 1. And it describes these men correctly. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were no, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Guys, Jesus delights in taking ordinary people and doing extraordinary things in and through them. And I want you to see that from this list. Fishermen, tax collectors, doubters, strugglers, zealots. This eclectic, ragtag, average group of men 
were called by God. And because of that calling, the ground was level for them. And for us and for them, the ground is level at the cross. Because Jesus calls us his own, and because we are united to him in his life, death, and resurrection, we too can live on mission with one another. And we too can fight the deception that God cannot use us because we're not on TikTok with a million followers, an influencer in social media, having money and recognition and fame and power. Whatever the deception of the devil speaks to you on, I want you to understand that God uses and he delights in using ordinary people like you and me to do extraordinary things in and through him for his kingdom and the growth of his church. And this is the God who took these men and made them into, as Paul would say in Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of the church with Christ as its cornerstone. Alistair Begg put it beautifully. He said, how wonderful that Christ doesn't call us by the strength of what we are, but on the strength of what, by his grace, he's going to make us. He doesn't just call us to obedience because we are a finished project. He calls us because of what, by his grace, he's going to make us into. This is the same for these disciples and apostles, and it's the same for us today. In Christ, we are not who we used to be, and because of him, we are not who we will become. So two things I want us to learn from this group this morning. I've already said, one, that God uses everyday, ordinary people to accomplish his mission. You see, these men provided nothing to this world of importance because of what they did, yet Jesus still called them. And I think we can get so caught up in asking ourselves or hearing from the world that we have to be remembered in the history books in order to do something for this life or for the gospel. And I want to tell you that that is a lie from Satan. You do not have to be remembered in the record books in order to do something for the gospel. There are plenty of men and women who you will meet in glory that you do not know their name. There are plenty of disciples in the New Testament that helped build the early church that we have no idea what their name is, and yet we are here because of their work. God uses everyday, ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things, mainly through the growth of his church. So guys, let's repent of this sinful fear of man and sinful fear that we can't do anything for the gospel mission unless we have a following or unless we have influence. The second thing is, and this may be a little bit harsher than that, so please bear with me. We have got to get over ourselves when it comes to the sin of comparison and the fear of man. We have got to get over ourselves when it comes to the sin of comparison and the fear of man and whether or not we can do life and mission with someone else that may not look like me. It's been a while since we walked through the book of Acts. I understand that. But I hope that you remembered Acts 2 and 4 when Luke describes what the church looked like early on. 
He says this in chapter 2, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness, or they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then in Acts 4, he says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. Everything in common. There is nothing different in regards to sinners like them in the new church than us. And yet, because of Christ, they had everything in common. And they were able to break bread. They were able to have one heart and one soul. And they were able to be generous because they understood that the ground at the cross is level. And they had everything in common. And they were able to do life together and pursue mission together. Now, here's what I'm not saying. We don't need to just walk out of here and go, I need to just fill my life with every single person in this church. We do need to be good stewards of our time, good stewards of the family that God has given us and the discipleship that we are called to. But what I am saying is that we do need to get over our fear of man when it comes to whether or not we can do mission with somebody that might not look like us. And I'm going to speak to men and women here. I see in our church where men who can hang out, but we don't go deeper because there's a fear of what other men might think of us. And so we can't have true community. We can't truly belong. We can't fully lock arms because we have a fear of man that we compare our lives or how we might not be doing something well to one another and we're worried about what people think. And so that creates a barrier. I see this in some of our women as well who compare their lives to the lives of someone else. And there's walls and barriers. I'm not a stay-at-home mom. I'm not a maker. I don't work in that field that she does or he does. How can we get along? How can we work in gospel community if we have these differences? But look at the early church in Acts 4. They had everything in common because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they overlooked those surface-level things in order to pursue one another, in order to be with one another. I love what Acts 2 says. They went to the temple day in and day out. And oftentimes, we just come for an hour and leave. And the church wanted to be together day in and day out because they shared in the commonality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, look at that list again. Peter, the optimist. Thomas, the doubter. Matthew, the tax collector. Simon, the zealot. I mean, can you imagine what kind of conversations are going on? Right? This is my job. I'm a tax collector. Well, this is my job. I'm trying to take that, the government down. And there are places for those conversations. Maybe not trying to destroy the government, but there are places for differences in regards to com- of what we believe. Republican, Democrat. Fill in the blank of what you might have in regards to differences. There are places to have those conversations. But we do so with the fruit of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. 
that has been given to us in Christ, understanding that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that is our foundation. And we come from a spirit of love and gentleness and peace and self-control in order to have these conversations, in order to do life with one another and to do mission with the people of God. And so we've got to do a better job of pursuing gospel-centered discipleship with one another because the church is the primary means in which God grows his kingdom. And my prayer is that we would be able to say, like Acts 2, like Acts 4, that our heart and soul is one with one another and we had everything in common. But we've got to start with repenting our, of our sin, of our fear of man, and the comparison to each other's lives. And we've got to get serious about living in community and being on mission with one another. Because remember, in Christ, we are not who we once were. And so we have that commonality. We can say, hey, I was not once, I, I am not who I once was. Neither are you. But because God has called me into your life and you've called me into mine, I know that we, we are not who we are being made to be and God is using you as a tool in my life to get me there. And this is all a part of his molding. I think sometimes we forget that when we see the scriptures that God is making us into the image of Christ, we don't actually think about the tools in which he is using to do that. And a lot of that is the community and the people of God and doing mission together. So these are the people that Jesus prayed for. These are the challenges I want to give to us this morning as a church. And one of the tangible ways that we get to celebrate each week that we too are called like the disciples, if you have placed your faith in Christ, you too have been called like the disciples, is through communion. We remember the promise that Christ has finished the work that we needed to be done on our behalf. And we are not who we once were and that in him we are becoming something greater. That finished image of Christ. And we know, as Paul says in Romans 8, that those who love God are called according, those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, in, called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We have been predestined, called, justified, and glorified in Christ because he lived the life we could never live. He died the sinner's death we so rightly deserve, and he rose from the grave three days later, sealing our election as sons and daughters of God. And we are now free to pursue one another. We are free to live on mission and pursue sharing the gospel and growing his kingdom with each and every one of us around in this church, those who aren't here, those who will be here, because the gospel makes the ground level. And this is what we celebrate in communion. And so if you guys will, um, come and grab the elements. And what we're going to do here as well is we're just going to take some time to examine our hearts before the Lord. So you guys can come and get the elements. Sorry. As you're doing that, one of the humbling things that we can take from this passage one of the humbling things that we can take from this passage is the story of Judas Iscariot. Now, you might be wondering why I would bring him up 
but he is someone that we can learn from as well. Because this is someone who walked so closely to Jesus and did ministry with Jesus and was taught by Jesus, and yet he betrayed Jesus. And he walked away revealing that his heart was not truly transformed, that he was not truly abiding in Christ. Now, I'm not saying this to scare you. What I am trying to do, though, is to reveal to you that the scriptures do give us ample warning for us to check our hearts consistently to see if we are abiding in Christ. And communion is one of those opportunities that give us time to examine before we take. Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians that we are to examine before we take this meal. And communion also encourages us to examine our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, if we have conflict with a brother, we are to put our offering down and go and reconcile with them because we understand we've been reconciled to God. And so therefore we need to be reconciled to each other before we take communion. And finally, the scriptures encourage those who have not tasted and seen the goodness of God in Christ Jesus as Lord to not partake in communion because we recognize that this is a sign of our covenant that has been made by the people of God. But I would encourage you, if you don't know or if you haven't placed your hope in Christ this morning, I would love to have a conversation with you. Ransford, you want to raise your hand? He would love to have a conversation with you about what it means to put your faith in Christ. So I'm going to give us some time to examine our hearts, and then I'm going to lead us in communion. Thank you for listening to a sermon from The District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at